I greatly enjoy when studies in the Old Testament just merge so beautifully and cleanly into the New Testament teachings. I'm especially amazed when that happens on the same Sunday because, you know, I'm just tracking two different books and then on a given Sunday they just kind of collide. And today's going to be one of those days. It's really exciting to see that here in Esther, the key message has been something that we've been looking at on Sunday morning. Now, in Esther, we're going to be in chapters 5 through 7 tonight, and we're going to see the quiet hand of God. This is going to be just something beautiful to see as God moves these pieces into place to be able to accomplish His purposes in such a magnificent way. Now, leading up to this, as we come into the fifth chapter of the, the book of Esther, Uh, We have noted that Haman is carrying out a plan as the enemy of the Jews to kill, destroy, and annihilate all the Jews within the empire. Uh, Esther is unaware of this, and Mordecai brings it to her attention uh, and tells her that this is your time. This is your opportunity, and perhaps the reason you are in the place that you are in is for this very moment of deliverance. Now, understanding the situation, though she be queen, you did not simply walk in before the king. You didn't just walk in and say, hey, Xerxes, how you doing? Good to see you. You feeling all right today? You know, and just just check things out. If you walked in before the king into his royal chambers without being summoned, there was one law that was death. And that is her expectation that she is sent message back to Mordecai is that I have not been summoned by the king. In fact, it's been a month since I've been summoned by the king, indicating in her mind that she has fallen out of his favor. And yet with great faith and courage, she tells Mordecai to have everybody fast for her for three days. And then she will go in before the king and make petition uh, for the people. And if she perishes, she perishes. And that's where now chapter 5 opens, is that Esther then gets her royal garbs on and prepares herself to go in before the king. We're told in verse 1 something that is already a bit of foreshadowing. I hope that as you come across this term over and over again in scriptures, it raises the flag and gives you the radar that when God starts talking about the third day, you should have an expectation of some kind of event, some kind of rescue, some kind of hope is going to be unveiled. And so it is even here, is that as Esther is going to approach the king, it is now the third day that she is going to go in. And so as she walks in, we notice that he sees uh, her coming into the court and immediately is pleased by her, has, gained, has favor uh, for her, and extends the gold scepter that is in his hand. And verse 2 says, she approaches and touches the tip of the scepter. This gaining of favor is, is even useful as well because it, it clues us in back to even Joseph. We've talked about a lot of parallels in the life of Joseph in the life of Esther. And here you see that parallel again as as God is working in Joseph's life twice. It will say that Joseph gained favor with Potiphar and gained favor with uh, the the one who was in charge of the prison. Well, 
Well, now as Esther is about to come in, immediately we're told she gained or won the favor of Xerxes, of Ahasuerus, the king, such that he spares her life, extends the gold scepter, and her response to that is one of gratefulness by going forward and touching the tip of the scepter. Now, you can imagine that he understands that she's not just randomly walking in here. And so the very next words are given to us in verse 3. What do you want? Obviously, you've come here for a purpose. You've put your neck on the line. What is your request? And then you'll notice it says that he says up to half the kingdom would be yours. Now, it's important to note. That's an idiomatic expression that obviously she couldn't say, okay, give me half the kingdom. And he'd go, well, I guess I said so, so here you go. That's not what that means. But it would be very similar to an idiom that we would use today. What's your request? The sky's the limit. You know, that's kind of how we would say something like that. That's what he's trying to tell her is whatever you're coming in here for, And whatever has given you the courage to come in here, even though you haven't been summoned, and you know the law is dead, then it must be something important. So go ahead and make your request, and I'll grant it to you. Ask what you will. Uh, Whatever it is, the sky's the limit. It is interesting that in verse 4, you'll notice that Esther does not say, Well, this terrible man that you have made second in command has put out this decree to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. And you need to do something about it because you said that whatever I request, you'll do. Notice that's not what she does. In verse 4, what she says is, well, here's what I want you to do. I'm holding a banquet today, and I would like for you and Haman, your second in command, your number two in charge, I want the both of you and you two alone to come to the feast that I'm going to give to you. Now, we've become aware from chapter 1 that Xerxes doesn't say no to a feast. He's all about that. 180-day feast he had after the 180 days. He had a seven-day one as well. He is one for banqueting and feasting, and so they absolutely agree. That's what they'll go do. And so the rest of it is them going and enjoying the banquet. But in verse 6, obviously, King Xerxes is not naive. He doesn't think that the only reason she came in here risking her life and nearly died was to invite him to a meal. There's obviously something that she has on her mind. And so he asks it again in verse 6 and says, What now is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom. It'd be great. You just say what you want, Esther, and I'll be certain to give it to you. And you might be surprised that in verse 7, her answer is not, hey, this Haman guy, and there's the whole kill, destroy, and annihilate the Jews. Now I've got him, and I'll go ahead and, and, and lay it all out on the line. No, her request is simply this. She says there in, in verse, verse 8, if it pleases the king, and if I have favor with you, that the king and Haman come with me tomorrow to a banquet, And tomorrow at the banquet, banquet, I promise to tell you what my request is. So let's do this again tomorrow. Well, you know, that sounds good. Let's do another day of feasting. No problem with that. I'm on board. And so that's what what Haman and Xerxes say they will do. You'll notice in verse 9, this sets up an interesting scene because Haman now is having a great day. 
Uh, he is, it says in verse 9, he went out happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and calling his friends, Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth and many sons and all the ways the king had honored him and how he had elevated him above the other nobles and officials. Verse 12, and if that's not all, I'm the only person that Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave. She has invited me along with the king tomorrow. Things just are going great. And so you can imagine him telling his friends, you won't believe what just happened. The queen had a banquet and she only invited two people, the king and I. That's it. Nobody else. And think about what just happened. Guess what also? They invited me to do it again tomorrow. I must be something. I mean, she thinks a lot of me. Isn't this great? So he is in the highest of spirits except this one problem. And it says there in verse verse 9 that Mordecai continues to refuse to show Haman any honor. And in fact, that he says that. Notice what he says now to his wife and his friends in verse 13. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. I am having the best of days and I am being honored beyond belief. I am feasting with the king today and I get to do it tomorrow. But here's the thing. I can't enjoy a second of it because of this Mordecai guy. This guy will not rise in honor for me. He doesn't tremble before me. He doesn't show me any kind of honor. And even though I am enjoying all of these blessings and having such a wonderful day, I can't have a good day at all because of that. So here's the natural response to that verse 14. His wife Zeresh says, says, and so do all the friends, We'll have a pole set up and have its height be 50 cubits, which is 75 feet high, and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it, and then go to the king to the ba- go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. Very simple solution to this. I mean, here, here's the way we handle such problems: we just kill the guy and we'll just put him up on a 75 foot pole for all the town of Susa to see, and that'll solve your problems. I hope that sounds a little familiar to you. Remember, Ahab has. King Ahab has everything in the world except he has this vineyard that he just can't have. And so what's his wonderful wife Jezebel's solution? Well, just kill the guy and take his vineyard. Well, the same thing is happening here. You have all of these blessings and all of this wealth and all this is going for you, Haman. But since you can't enjoy life because of this one individual, here's what you should do. Just go ahead and kill him and then just move on with yourself. And I want us to think just for a moment, as much as we might think this is absolutely silly. I mean, how could it be possible for somebody to be enjoying such a great day and have all of these blessings and all of this wealth and just have all of this good happening to them? 
to allow this one little thing to completely throw off their day. I know we just look at that and think that's ridiculous. (laughs) Oh, how easy that is. Is that you see in Haman a common theme about you are so stuck on this one thing that you're unable to see everything else that is going on around you. Unable to see all of the blessings. And what a statement that he makes where he is just gushing about the privilege that he has experienced with the king and with the queen and to get to experience it again tomorrow, but to be able to utter these words that I can't have any joy, there's no satisfaction, there's no way for me to appreciate any of this because of this one silly person over here who is causing me trouble. And I hope that this is not the point of the lesson at all, but I think an important side point. That, that we would think about that, that we allow that to happen so easily in our lives, to allow a particular circumstance, a particular individual to, to work in our lives to such a degree that we have all of these blessings and all of this joy and all of these things to focus on in the Lord, and that we would allow one person to ruin that, that we shouldn't do that. And, and we read it so easily and Haman go, oh, Haman, what? Well, that's just silly. How could you be like that? And I hope you let that resonate the next time that happens to you and to me, because it's easy to do. And I think it's important to see it in him that you go, so much is going for you, appreciate what you have. And so with the ending of chapter five, I want you to see how chapter five ends is we have taken what appears to be a hopeless situation and made it infinitely worse. We have gone from chapter four, which is all the Jews are going to be destroyed, killed and annihilated. And so somebody's got to do something about it. And chapter five is, oh, and Mordecai is going to die in the morning. Mordecai is dead. He is going to be executed and placed on a pole before all the city of Susa, 75 feet high. And that's going to be how this is all going to play out. And that's where we're going in chapter six. But interestingly, a little simple thing that seems so insignificant will change the course of events. Watch the quiet hand of God as chapter six and verse one opens. It turns out that we have a king that just can't sleep that night of all the things with this powerful king. He has a restless night And of all the things that he asks, he asks for one of his servants to go and get the chronicles of the records of basically all of his achievements of what he's accomplished as he's reigned over Persia. So basically, you know, read me my honor roll of how good I've been doing as ruler over over the land. And so the accolades are being read about his rule. And he comes across there in verse 2 that he found out about Mordecai who had exposed two of the king's officers and foiled this assassination plot. And the question comes up in verse 3, well, what honor and recognition was given to Mordecai that he did this for me, that he was loyal to me, that he averted this assassination plot? What was done for him? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And just as that is being expressed to the king, 
Verse 4 tells us Haman comes in and he's on a mission. He's going to get Mordecai killed. That's why he's shown up. His wife just told him, first thing you need to do is go back before the king and get the the ability to go ahead and have him executed. So we are told now in verse 4, Haman has come in and the reason he has come in is to speak to the king about the impaling of Mordecai in a pole that he had set up for him. Can you imagine all night? He's just put that pole together. He's got the 75 foot pole ready. Goes in now before the king and he comes in to make the request. But before he can get the request out we have the king asking a question and the question is simply this what should be done verse 6 for the man who the king delights to honor (laughs) oh uh, you know the king is interested in in showing some honor and, and so what should be done For such a one, Haman. And of course, Haman thinks, who else in all of the empire could the king possibly be talking about but me? (laughs) And so Haman now conjures up everything that he would want to have happen to himself. And so he begins to give the long list and he he describes from verse 7 through through verse 9 and put him with a royal robe being brought and put on his shoulders and, and have him ride on the king's horse in the square of the city and have the one pulling the horse yelling in a loud voice proclaiming this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king says, that is a brilliant idea. Go do that for Mordecai. Oh, oh boy. You know, just a few minutes earlier, Haman was coming to get him killed. His arch enemy now is the one that he is going to do this. Verse 10, go at once, get the robe, get the horse, and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything that you have recommended. So Haman got the robe and the horse. He robed Mordecai. Now, just please visualize him putting the robe on Mordecai. You can just see him seething as he's doing this. Robe Mordecai, led him on horseback through the city streets proclaiming before him this This is what is done for the man who the king delights to honor. And it says there in verse 12 that after Mordecai returned to the king's gate, Haman rushed home with his head covered in grief and told Zeresh, his wife, and all of his friends everything that had happened. He ends up giving all of the details of what was going to inevitably give Mordecai all the honor. The very thing that Haman wants is now given to Mordecai instead. And notice for the turn of events that begins to unfold. Because in verse 13, after Haman spills the beans about, here's what I just went through. The very man that you told me to go get killed because he was raining on my parade and I can't even enjoy the blessings. I was just going to get him taken care of. I now just rode him through the streets proclaiming here is the honor the king they're given to this man says there in verse 13 Zeresh said since Mordecai before whom your downfall has started is of Jewish origin you cannot stand against him you will surely come to ruin what prophetic words that she now simply utters Where she simply makes the point, you can't stand against the people of God. 
I find this humorous because if I'm Haman, I would be like, where was that info last night? But okay, here we go. You know, plans already in effect. In fact, verse 14 says, before Haman can do anything, we have the servants of the king rushing him to the banquet that has been prepared by, by the queen. But I hope you hear even some future uh, prophetic overtones. Now, here is the wife saying, essentially, you're doomed because you have anything to do with this man. I put this, the text on the screen. Remember Pilate's wife doing something awfully similar? Having this dream that has troubled her and how he, Pilate, is to have nothing to do with this person. Same thing as unfolding here. You are going to find yourself in trouble if you have anything to do with this situation. But there is nothing Haman can do. In fact, I want us to see at this point in chapter 6, there's nothing anybody can do. The plan is moving by the hand of God. The quiet hand of God is moving the pieces into place. Haman is going to go to the banquet and there's nothing that's going to change now the outcome of what's about to happen in chapter 7. In chapter 7, we see that the king and Haman enter in for the banquet there. And you can imagine as they're coming and preparing for this moment and we're going to have this great feast and it says that they're drinking wine and feasting and eating. Again... The king is not naive. And so asks again, what's the request? Why are we doing this? With the same, same point being made at the end of verse 2, even up the half to kingdom, it'll be granted to you. Sky's the limit, Queen Esther. You've gained favor with me. Please tell me what you want. And so finally she reveals in verse 3, she says, if I have found favor in your eyes and it pleases you, Grant my life. This is my petition. Notice that she doesn't frame it outside of herself. She starts with, you need to save my life. Not only do you need to save my life, you need to save the life of my people. Verse 4, for I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I, I would have kept quiet and would not have distressed the king over this. But we're going to be put to death. Verse 5, Xerxes then says, Who is he? Where is he? The man who dares to do such a thing. You see, she has now gained so much favor with him at this point that now he is outraged by the very idea that someone is going to kill his queen and kill her people. So who is this man who would do such a thing like this? Verse 6 Esther says, an adversary and an enemy, and I can just imagine the hand extending, the vile Haman. (laughs) He's the one who is going to have me and my people killed. You suppose the color in Haman's body just went out at that moment right there? And you notice what happens in verse verse 6. We're told Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, the king gets up in rage. He leaves his food. He leaves his wine. And he goes out to his palace garden. He is just absolutely incensed by this. And there's really now, quick, what are you going to do as Haman at this moment? If you go chase after the king, do you think that's going to go well for you? Probably not. If you run away, is that going to go well for you? Definitely not. All that is left for him to do 
is to plead with Esther for his life. And in the process of pleading for his life, as she's sitting on the couch, it appears that he kind of stumbles and falls into her lap on the couch right as the king comes walking back in from the garden. And it looks like he's assaulting her and says, that's enough. You think you're going to get away with that? And immediately Hood is put over his head and he is taken away. In the effort to save his life, he loses his life. The king exclaims, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's face, we are told the end of verse 8, they covered Haman's face. I love verse 9. One of the eunuchs who's standing there goes, hey... Haman built a big 75 foot pole over here to impale Mordecai on. We could use that. <laughs> and the king goes, great. We'll use that. In verse 9, the command is given, impale him on it. Verse 10, they impaled Haman on the pole that had been set up for Mordecai. And the king's fury subsided. Horrible chapter break right here. Keep going. The same day Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came to the presence of the king, came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which had been reclaimed from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther was appointed over Haman's estate. The reversal is complete. As everything that Haman planned to do now comes back upon himself. Everything that Haman had wished to have happened to Mordecai, the opposite happens to him. Everything that Haman wished for himself is given to Mordecai instead. Let's talk just a minute about what we can see here regarding the quiet moving hand of God. With Mordecai, we see something powerful. He was sentenced to death, but instead of death, he's raised to life. His enemy is destroyed. The signet ring is taken from Haman. His enemy is given to Mordecai. And the enemy was even made to go about the city proclaiming the greatness of Mordecai. You are getting all in these chapters what appears to be hopelessness and darkness and no way for there to be any light to be reversed into hope and turned into greatness. And what I hope that we would see is everything in those three chapters were simple, seemingly insignificant events. There was no miracle. There was no sky opening up. There was nothing even dramatically unusual All through simple things. Esther gives two simple feasts. A king has a sleepless night. An arrogant and vengeful Haman all puts together for the rescue of Mordecai. Seemingly insignificant, seemingly impossible things are all threaded together to be able to bring about the deliverance and rescue of Mordecai. I hope that you see the very same thing in ultimately when you look at the life of Jesus, how that all plays out. 
Here is God sending His Son. He's hung on a cross. He's not going to come down. He stays on the cross so that we can be saved. And in that moment, it seems like all hope is lost. You might remember the two men on the road to Emmaus. So they're discussing the events that have happened in Jerusalem. How they thought that this was the one who was going to redeem Israel. This would be the rescuer. This was going to be the one to bring about our hope and our redemption. That seemed like he was the one. And yet these events seem to make it think that he's not the one. And yet in a similar fashion on the third day, a reversal occurs. Hope is displayed. The rejected stone becomes the chief cornerstone. The words of Isaiah come true. When you make his life an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring and he shall prolong his days. And for us now, we're able to look at the life of Jesus and see the quiet hand of God moving in seemingly insignificant events through the darkness to create the rescue. As you're moving along the process, if you don't know how it's all going to turn out, you're going to read this and go, oh no, he's being betrayed. Uh, Oh no, he's being arrested. Oh no, he's being put on trial. Oh no, there's being false witnesses used. Oh no, the high priest is crooked and is going to do whatever he can to get him crucified. Oh no, he's been put on the cross. You would go through that and go, there is no hope. How is God going to do anything? And yet the quiet hand of God is always moving through what can be simple and seemingly insignificant events. And this book has done this. It is trying to help us live with a courageous faith when we see these dramatic reversals in every single person who's been described. Remember, we've seen already the reversal in the life of Esther. We saw the horror of chapter 2, how she's lost her family. She's swept up by a king who is just looking to grab whatever virgins in the kingdom there are. And now she's been put in a position of being queen. A reversal happens in her life. Now we've seen the reversal of Mordecai as well. Both of them going from the bottom and going through difficulties and hardships to now being put on top. Amazingly, Mordecai now has the very signet ring that was given to Haman. And Mordecai is put in the number two position. He has the position of influence now. He's been taken from death and brought to life. And the same idea happens in Haman. Haman also has experienced the reversal in the opposite fashion. He has gone from the top. And has now come all the way down to the bottom. He starts off as the enemy of the Jews and the enemy of the people of God. And God has worked things to make sure he has now hit the bottom. And now he is executed for standing against God and his people. The reversal is seen in the life of Jesus. You could go through the whole scriptures and just watch the reversals that God causes. That God is always working these kinds of things. This is the God we serve. I had like five titles for this sermon. One of them was God reverses. This is the big picture in these three chapters. The quiet hand of God is reversing events in the life of people. And I want to end by us talking about how that's true for us too. But these are not just stories of ancient times of thousands of years ago and What does all this mean for us? It means a lot for us, actually. It means quite a bit for us in talking about 
reversal. As we end, I'd like for you just to be over in Ephesians 2, a passage that most of us would know very well. Ephesians 2. Because Ephesians 2 also puts forward two dramatic reversals. One we're probably very familiar with, and maybe the other we haven't thought about as much. The familiar one I'll go faster with, and the one that we may not have thought about I'll slow down a little bit on. The first reversal is is certainly the obvious one that is given to us in chapter 2. The great reversal that is given to us is that we were dead in our sins, but God who is rich in mercy, who loves us with great love, has made us alive. By grace you have been saved. This is a game-changing reversal that every person of God has experienced. That we were children of wrath, worthy of judgment, destined to death, but God has flipped the script for us through the death of His Son. Now rather than experiencing death, we are also raised to life. We enjoy the grace of God and we experience then the hope that is found in that. But that's the one we know. Maybe the one we don't pay attention to quite as much that is also found here. The second great reversal that is found here. I want you to notice it in in verse 10. Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are God's handiwork or workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now you might read that and say, what do you, I don't see the reversal. What do you mean that that's the reversal? But remember what the first three verses were saying in verse 2. We were following the ways of the world, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in the sons of disobedient. And all of us lived among them, verse 3, gratifying the cravings and the desires of the flesh and following their desires and thoughts and like the rest were children of wrath. Notice the picture was total self-destruction. Here is what you were. You were doing what you wanted to do. You were following your desires. You were listening to your I think so's. You were doing what you wanted to do. And in the process of doing that, you were destroying yourself. But here's the reversal. Verse 10, God says, I made you to be mine. That you are my handiwork. That you are my workmanship, you are my creation. Or to put it more to the point of verse 10, that you and I have been made to do good works as God's workmanship. You have been made for a particular purpose. And this is the great reversal that God gives us, is that he is changing this purpose. A purpose that becomes from self-destruction, living for self hurting ourselves, harming others, full of sin, and say, no, I'm going to reverse your life. You're my creation. You're my workmanship. You were created for something far better. You were created for something far greater. You were created for something far more important. And you were created to do good works as you show yourself to be the people of God. And I hope that what you're seeing is ultimately... The merging of this morning to this evening's lesson in the exact same point that's being made. This is what is happening in the life of Esther. This is what's happening in the life of Mordecai is 
God is working these changes and is using these people, and yet he does it in such a subtle way. And it is an important reminder to us that our lives do not have to be a waste. Our lives are not futile. We, our lives do not have to stay damaged. They don't have to stay wrecked. We don't have to live in the mess of what we've done to ourselves or what other people have done to us. That God is able to reverse our condition. That God is able to change us, to make us his people so that we can be useful in his kingdom. And it doesn't matter how broken and messed up we are. He uses us. He reverses our condition. He transforms us so that we can do good works for him. That's the purpose that's been granted to us. I'll end by saying it perhaps like this. If God thought that the only people that he could use to be his creation and to do his good works and to fulfill his purpose were only good, righteous people, how many workers is he going to have? He knew full well what we would do. He knew that we would mess this up. And that's the whole point of Ephesians 2. God reverses. God will change the condition. You give your life to him. You do what he's called you to do. You fulfill his purpose. God will do great things in your life as you serve him every day. Just as you see with Esther. Just as you see with Mordecai. The quiet hand of God. Moving pieces in our lives. So that we can be what he's called us to be. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father. It is amazing to read these three chapters in the book of Esther that shows us how you moved these pieces into place. It is stunning, Lord, to watch. And Lord, we know as observers of this text, it wouldn't look like anything good was going to come from it, and yet it did. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live courageously with faith that we would see this in the lives of Esther and Mordecai and apply this to our hearts. And Lord, so many times we look into our lives and it looks dark and hopeless and it feels like we need to give up and it feels like there's no joy or satisfaction. There's times, Lord, where we just feel a lot of hurt and pain. And Lord, I pray that we would see that you are a God who reverses situations, you reverse conditions, that we would see that your hand can move through these dramatic and sometimes traumatic events. Help us to see that even in the darkest of times, you are able to move things in our lives in such a way that you are accomplishing your purposes and in such a way that we can have hope. God, forgive us for how often we do not trust you in this and help us to have a greater faith in you in the days ahead as we go through suffering, trials, and difficulties. Help us to see you working in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.